Welcome to the Athlete's First Performance Podcast, where two performance-minded physical therapists break down the evidence to improve overall health, movement, and performance for athletes and active individuals. Welcome to episode 18 of the Athlete's First Performance Podcast. Today, Josh and I are going to break down the patellofemoral pain clinical practice guidelines. And by the end of this uh, podcast, the listeners and you guys should all be able to diagnose patellofemoral pain, how to classify it, how to treatment. And then we'll give you guys some of our clinical pearls that we're using in the clinic and how we've taken this research and applied it to the clinic. So Josh, do you want to start off by just kind of describing what patellofemoral pain is? Yeah, um, essentially patellofemoral pain, it's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion, but um, uh, it's, it's presence of retropatellar or parapatellar pain. Um, typically, uh, it'll be, you'll notice pain with um, knee flexion loading. So squatting, stairs, um, prolonged sitting even, uh, or, you know, any other activity, running, things like that. Um, and the, and like I said, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So, uh, there's not very many great, um, diagnostic tests or, um, factors that would necessarily lead you to the, uh, diagnosis of patellofemoral pain outside of loaded squatting being painful. Um, so it's something that you would come into, uh, after ruling out a bunch of, um, other anterior knee pain possibilities, um, do you want to go into what other knee pain possibilities there are? Yeah. So I think the biggest things that we have to try to rule out are any type of ligamentous instability. And you'll get a lot of that from the subjective exam. So if they're playing football and they cut and hear a pop and their knee immediately swells, you're probably not going to be thinking patellofemoral pain in that instance. So making sure that we're ruling out ligamentous instability and even possible meniscus type injuries. So um, again, that locking, clicking, catching more of that joint line pain versus pain around the patella. So those are some of the, the big things that we want to rule out right away. And some other things that will probably confuse us, or maybe some new clinicians might not understand the difference between patellofemoral pain and something in the lines of patellar tendon pain. So I think the biggest difference between that patellar tendon pain and patellofemoral pain is location. So it's going to be more tenderness to palpation along the tendon with that patellar tendon pain and higher levels of loading are going to irritate that tendon. So um, those quick jumps, high velocity jumps, sprinting, that's going to be more related to patellar tendon pain versus patellofemoral pain. And with the, the tendon type athletes, it's going to be more of like the basketball or volleyball, those jumping type athletes. Yeah. I think um, one of the bigger things for me, like in regards to differentiating between the two is just like location of pain. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, patellar tendinopathy is fairly straightforward, just like where the pain is being um, at the patellar pole or just, you know, throughout the tendon, as opposed to um, around the kneecap. I also think that that pain is like specific, um, whereas patellofemoral pain can be kind of hard to, hard to localize, I guess. Yeah. It's more diffuse and it's not point tender. Um, mm -hmm. And then one, one other thing that I like to think about is potential patellar subluxation. And again, you're going to catch this in the subjective exam. The patient's going to say, Hey, I was landing from a jump or I went to cut and my 
in their patient's words, my patella went out of place or my knee dislocated. So those are things, again, that you'll be able to catch early on in the subjective exam, as well as if it's early, there's going to be a lot of pain and swelling in that patellar region after a patellar subluxation. Yeah. Um, and then if we kind of dive into the specifics of what how you would diagnose patellofemoral pain and part in the history and then um, also in the examination, um, the patellofemoral pain, and you can tell me what you see the most, um, can be can come on gradually or acutely. Um, I see gradually more uh, just because um, typically it's going to be a gradual increase in activity or increase in loading that starts to irritate the painful structures around the kneecap. Um, would you say you typically see a more of a gradual onset um, or you see an acute onset in the uh, um, in your setting being that it's in the military? Yeah, I think we see a little bit of both. Uh, my setting is a little different. Like you said, in the military setting, we have pretty good access to care. So if someone goes on a long run or a ruck, they'll be able to see us either that day or the following day. So we'll see those acute knee pain flare-ups. And those are a little bit um, easier to treat in my mind, just decrease the load and let them rest a little bit. But um, for the most part, we see just that gradual onset, their, their unit or their company has been doing a lot of running. They've ramped up their running in the past couple of weeks. And it's just gradually getting worse, worse, and worse. So, um, yeah, I would say it's just a combination of both. Yeah. Um, and then if we move into, and there's, well, we can talk about how you would diagnose based on kind of the classification that the uh, clinical practice guidelines uh, talked about, which was just expert opinion. Um, but I thought kind of helpful to organize your thought process. But before we do that, just some general, I guess this would be, um, kind of busting some myths and then also just, just seeing what actually does apply to, um, or what affects patellofemoral pain. But, um, so I'll just kind of go through these and you can chime in um, with any of it, but, um, uh, so according to the guidelines, age, body mass, height, and BMI are not risk factors of patellofemoral, um, in the clinic, I see people that, um, you know, maybe they have a higher BMI and they'll admit to needing to lose, um, but not necessarily a risk factor for patellofemoral pain, um, the Q angle, so the angle between the femur and the, uh, the tibia, um, not a risk factor, which I thought was kind of interesting, um, considering some of the other things that, uh, that, that you would, that would help you diagnose patellofemoral pain. Um, but I assume because the Q angle is a static measurement, that's probably why it's not a, not a risk factor. Would you agree? Yeah. And I think it kind of goes against what we learn in school, like looking at the Q angle and being able to potentially determine if this patient's at an increased risk. But yeah, like you said, it's more of a static measurement. We don't know how that Q angle is going to play out in more of a dynamic and higher speed role. So um, definitely something to take a look at and notice, but not going to be that, like we said, that full risk factor. Yeah. Don't hang your hat on it. Um, and then uh, excessive pronation is not a factor. And that's just, I feel like pronation has been just an overused word for a really long time. So um uh, not necessarily a factor, but when we get into treatment, um, it seems like possibly some of the short-term treatments that may um, affect that, that movement um, can be beneficial. Uh, and then some of the things that are, you know, that, that are fairly consistent with people with patellofemoral pain are going to be muscular weakness, um, uh, quads or uh, hip abductors, extensors, and external rotators. Um, starting with the quads, uh, you may see quad atrophy. It says via imaging, but I feel like, I mean, obviously 
you know, we've all seen someone who's had uh, like knee surgery, like an ACL repair, like quad atrophy and those patients are quite obvious. Um, coming from a bit of a personal perspective, me having um, some patellofemoral pain there, I, I can notice some quad atrophy in the, the leg that's uh, painful. Um, but, you know, uh, primarily through imaging because it's probably not going to be super um, uh, visual in the clinic. And then uh, uh, the hip abductors, extensors, and external rotators, um, uh, there, is, there is some um, evidence to say isometric strength of that musculature can possibly uh, lead to or at least put them in one of these categories that we're going to talk about in a second. Um, but they specifically say decreased rate of force development um, is, uh, can be a risk factor of patellofemoral pain. Um, uh, and then the hard part is to know whether the weakness is a cause of patellofemoral pain or if it's, um, just a result of patellofemoral pain. And, um, the, I feel like, and they don't necessarily specify this. I think the general consensus is that it's most likely more of a result of patellofemoral pain is not as far as, uh, not a cause. Yeah. And I think that's one of the biggest takeaways because in PT school, you're taught, okay, strengthen the hip, strengthen the hip. And yes, we definitely want to strengthen the hip, but those weak posterolateral hip muscles are probably not the cause of patellofemoral pain, but like you said, it's that result. So someone's demonstrating anterior knee pain with a certain task or running their posterolateral hip is probably going to be um, able to produce less force due to that pain. And kind of going off what you were saying, the quad weakness is a big, big risk factor, especially in that military population. And there was one study that I was reading that uh, people that go on to develop telephomoral pain demonstrate six to 12% of quad strength deficits compared to um, age and uh, sex controls. So I thought that was pretty interesting that um, it wasn't so much the hip weakness, but the quad weakness goes on to uh, affect the anterior knee. Yeah. Um, and, uh, that's something that is, is hard to diagnose, um, with manual muscle tests. So, uh, dynamometers, um, uh, helpful if you can, uh, if you have one that you can use, um, just to, and I think for the, for the, the patient too, it really shows like the difference between, um, the, the non-involved leg and the involved leg. Um, yeah. And then the rate of, uh, or sorry, um, we talked about rate of force development, in the hip, um, but they also have some evidence to show that uh, there may be some central factors uh, affecting quad strength or the inability, inability to activate the quad fully. Um, and they think this could be um, possibly similar or related to arthrogenic inhibition. So the, essentially the, the quad not wanting to work well because there could be swelling in the knee, but just because it hurts essentially. Um, so maybe some avoidance. And if we talk about avoidance, which could could indicate quad weakness or maybe not just a compensation pattern is you'll see some of these patients um, perform knee loading tasks with less knee flexion. So um, like going upstairs, for example, or in the stance phase, phase of um, running, you may not see as much of a vertical excursion as, as someone who uh, doesn't have this issue. Um, and then just kind of lead into biomechanics. You may also see um, what they called uh, greater frontal plane projection angle, which is just a measurement of femoral adduction internal rotation um, in a, uh, a 2D view, um, two-dimensional view. Uh, and it's, you know, it's said that athletes with this are more likely to have patellofemoral pain. So there's a difference between Q angle and this 
femoral adduction, internal rotation, um, or valgus position with movement. So it's more the dynamic movement than the uh, st static movement. Yeah, for sure. And going back a little bit to the quad strength, I know you guys have access to the isokinetic machine. Are you using that isokinetic machine for patients uh, with patellofemoral pain, or are you guys using it mostly for like post-op knees? Uh, mostly for post-op knees, at least um, uh, for me at this point. But uh, yeah, well, I mean, you definitely can use it, and I think it's can be helpful for rate of force development. Um, uh, but if I'm not using the isokinetic machine, I'm using a handheld dynamometer particularly since you see this occur in more of the active population, um, it really helps you understand the differences because when you, you manual muscle tests, you know, an active person, you're probably not going to notice a major difference um, in quad strength. And if, and, and then I would say, if you don't have a dynamometer, you would at least want to look at some sort of functional test or some sort of repetition um, test to see if there's a difference side to side. Yeah, for sure. And I know that's something that I've changed over the past month or two is I have that Tindec device. So I'm just using that inline dynamometer for every uh, um, patient that I have that has knee pain. And it is really good um, to, for that person to be able to see, okay, what are the actual numbers? What am I able to produce? And then that helps them set goals for later on in the rehab and determines if we're actually making progress or not. But then going off of that, like you said, the functional test, what type of functional tests are you doing in the clinic? Uh, I would say the, I mean, you obviously would look at a squat, but that's a, if you're trying to differentiate limb to limb, um, uh, like a, a regular squat's not going to do that, but you can at least look at um, uh, their performance of the task. And then obviously uh, if it reproduces pain and then you can use that later on with certain treatments um, as a, uh, you know, as a sign that if you do something and that gets better, it's probably worth doing. Um, I really like uh, kind of a lateral toe tap. Um, it sort of depends on what, how painful they are and if there's, um, you know, what their depth may be. So we have, we have just, you know, like your typical, like steps or the, the boxes uh, in the clinic that go from like two inch, four inch, six inch, eight inch. Um, ideally you're working up to like a six inch box because I feel like a four inch box gets pretty easy, but there's a big difference um, just increasing the two inches, but even more if they can handle it and just going for repetition. So um, uh, just looking at, um, you know, their form, what their knee is doing, but also um, pain with either one, if you're still trying to diagnose or if you're just looking for strength, um, uh, looking at, you know, if they do 10 to 15 repetitions, what may feel harder, um, or what may fatigue out quicker. Uh, and then if someone's really painful, this isn't necessarily a functional test, but I'll just have them do just like we would do, um, with, uh, someone who's had knee surgery. I'll just have them do some straight leg raises and just see what they're, um, you know, if they have any quad leg, obviously that would, uh, show fairly significant quad weakness on the involved side. Um, so I will do that if they're very painful because they're not going to load the knee um, uh, in flex positions, but most likely in a extended position, uh, they'll, they'll do pretty well. Yeah. I like that. And I've seen some people that seem to be functional, that they're still pushing through runs. They're still weight training, but they can't perform 20 straight leg raises without a lag. They're just super weak. So I do like that. And I'm pretty similar to you. I use that lateral step down or that lateral heel tap test, um, usually doing eight inches and I'm just going for 10 reps and looking at their movement quality. So looking at trunk stability and hip stability, making sure that they're not excessively leaning. Um, they're able to keep their pelvis level. And then 
um, making sure that they're able to keep that good hip stability, no, no knee valgus, no foot collapse and things of that nature. I would I say too, a couple other ones, um, that that's kind of focusing more like quad type things. Um, uh, obviously if they can handle knee extensions or something like that, you could do that for reps. Um, but that may be fairly uncomfortable, particularly in those last few angles of, uh, knee extension. Um, but if you're looking at like his hip weakness, right, we know it's part of it. You can look at a, um, uh, a single leg bridge isometric. So you just get up into a single leg bridge and hold it. Um, and I would pay attention to, or making sure that you have their hands crossed over their chest. Um, because if their hands are, uh, on the table, they'll be able to balance as opposed to letting those lateral, um, hip muscles keep you up. And then, um, a side plank could be really helpful as well, just to see um, if there's differences side to side uh, in their ability to either hold it for a particular amount of time or hold it off, particularly if you have, you know, a runner um, or someone with, I guess, longer legs, if they're doing a side plank and you're in, you kind of get, and you get them up on the one leg as opposed to using both legs, you'll, I mean, some people, it's a fairly hard activity. So I would say probably a lot of people aren't necessarily able to do it well, but um, you'll definitely be able to see side to side differences. Yeah, I like the side plank for at least 30 seconds side to side. And then similar to you, that single leg bridge, I think is a good overall indicator of that posterior lateral hip, a little bit of hamstring. Um, I'll just put them on, they're, they're on their back with their foot and heel on a 12 to 18 inch box and then go for 20 reps. Try to, try to see if they're able to maintain good hip position and be able to achieve the same height, 20 reps side to side. A lot of times people will fatigue out at 10, 15 reps. And again, it's just a test that I like to use for, uh, for most lower extremity um, athletes or patients. I think single leg balance is perfectly appropriate um, just to see if they have more control on one side versus the other, see what their knees are more um, likely to do. And then if you're doing those lateral heel taps, just um, it's fairly easy, particularly if someone's had um, pain for a while to have the intralimb compensation. So um, maybe their, their, uh, trunk angle leans forward to emphasize more of their hip as opposed to, uh, putting strength, uh, or putting load right through the, the knee or the quad. So I would typically have them try to stay as vertical as possible. Um, and then also, I, I don't know, you may have seen this or not, but I feel like, uh, where they're putting their pressure through their foot. So, um, you may see someone who, uh, who has a fair amount of knee pain, um, put their pressure through the forefoot, almost like helping to recruit the gastroc to help get them up as opposed to keeping the pressure through the center of the foot or even the heel. And then you also may see them, uh, uh, not drive their knee forward as much. Um, so I feel like those are all compensations that, um, that you may see. And then when they do those, just like balance, when they do those lateral heel taps, seeing what their, what their knee is doing and what their foot is doing. And if you do a barefoot, seeing if they're gripping with their toes and such, yeah, for sure. Definitely barefoot because you're able to see the foot and ankle complex work a little bit better. Um, so moving in, there was really only one test that they talked about in this CPG looking at the patella. So the uh, patellar tilt test, is that something that you use or check out with your uh, patients that have knee pain? I've started to look at it more and, and I don't know, this obviously isn't necessarily very scientific, but for me, just having this issue for a while, um, and me having my, uh, knee looked at, um, uh, imaged as well. Like there's an obvious patellar tilt on the side that hurts a lateral tilt, um, uh, compared to the, 
the side that doesn't bother me. So I definitely think it's worth looking at. I don't think I paid attention to it all that much because it's hard to know whether it's like actually the issue. Um, but uh, I think it is worth looking at. And then when we get into taping, that's there's type, different taping techniques that um, can also be diagnostic with um, patellar tilt. So it's certainly something I look at. It's hard to visualize, I would say, um, uh, or yeah, visualize in the clinic. It's fairly easy um, with a radiograph, but uh, yeah, I would get, I would say something that I look at now more than I used to. Yeah. I mean, I check superior, inferior, medial, lateral, rotational glides of the knee. Um, and with people that do have restricted motion of their patella, there is a big difference right versus left. So it's definitely something to check out. I don't know how specific you need to be. Uh, you might have a little bit more information on that than me, but when there is a difference, it's pretty easy to tell. So I think it's worth looking at and treat what you find, right? Keep it simple. Yeah, I, I don't. I would say that there's, I'm not very specific with it. It's just kind of something to keep, keep in mind, but to be fair, like if, so if we think of the like a, a lateral patellar tilt, you're thinking of tight lateral structures, such as the retinaculum, or um, even if the IT band blends down with the knee, but you can't, I mean, can you really change that unless you have some sort of lateral release? Like, I mean, it's, you can tape, which, which can help, I guess, but I mean, it can help reduce pain we know that but in the short term but is it going to change the the you know the mobility of those structures probably not so i don't as far as from a pt perspective i don't know how you're really going to make a difference there um uh, and except for just unloading the area as best you can with pop like with taping um to just to allow for rest but i don't think you're going to lengthen those tissues unless you have a lateral release of some sort yeah, I think we're past the days of stretching the IT band. So uh, we'll keep on moving on from there. How about the yep. foot? Um, the navicular drop test was mentioned in the CPG. Um, I think we all look at the foot, but are you using anything like the navicular drop test or the foot posture index in the clinic? No. The only thing that I do with looking at the foot outside of um, uh, what it does when they're, they're doing a particular task is just what their dorsiflexion is. It's really the only thing I look at. Yeah. And are you doing closed chain, open chain, both for dorsiflexion? Uh, generally just closed chain. Yeah. That kneeling uh, knee to wall test, measuring um, how close that you're able to get your foot with your knee touching the wall. So uh, yeah. we, we generally look at four inches from uh, the foot to the wall, being able to get their knee um, over their toe. So that's, I think that's a pretty standard test. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I think it's good to have a norm in mind, but it's also kind of like, what does their task require? Um, but I would say, yeah, if you can get four inches over, I'm sure that's plenty. But then also just side to side, I think is just kind of like you would measure range, like shoulder range of motion or whatever, generally, unless it's a throwing athlete, like side to side comparisons. I, I use that quite a bit. Yeah, for sure. And if they're lacking that dorsiflexion, they're going to achieve that position somehow. And usually they default into that excessive pronation. So um, if you can change dorsiflexion, you can probably help improve their foot control as well. Yeah. Yeah. And if you want, I don't know if you have anything else beyond that, but if you want to get into the classifications, we can kind of talk about um, the people that may require that uh, versus other types of treatment. 
Yeah. So I think this is, for me, this is the biggest uh, takeaway that I got from rereading this article in the clinical practice guidelines. So they pretty much classified uh, patients that have the anterior knee pain into four different groups. So the first group was that overuse and overload without any specific impairments. The second group was movement coordination deficits. Third group was muscle performance deficits. And then the last group was mobility impairments, hypermobility and hypomobility. We can start with that overuse and overload. And kind of like we started off this podcast in terms of just getting that subjective history, it's just too much, too fast. Like I was talking about earlier, a lot of our patients that we see during our walk-in hours is, hey, I just went for a four-mile run or an eight-mile ruck. And we ask them, have you been training up to that? No, it was just programmed, so we had to do it. So, I mean, of course, you can get that from their history and pretty much have that, put that in that category, that overuse overload. We're still going to test and assess all the other factors that we looked at, um, but these athletes and these, these patients might not even have any um, objective findings. They might look good. They might have good strength, good motor control, good mobility, but they just weren't prepared for that task, which is um, creating that flare up in their knee. Yeah, I imagine that you guys probably see that category the most, right? Yeah, and I think that's why they do a lot of these studies in the military population um, from cadets at West Point or the Naval Academy, basic training, and then just throughout the military, just because they don't really have a choice. Um, whoever's programming the workout, whatever the task they have to do is they pretty much just push through it, whether they've trained for it or not. Um, luckily that's improving with the new systems that are being in place with the performance programs, but yeah, I mean, they have to complete the task and sometimes they're prepared, sometimes they're not and things flare up. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. I would say probably that's the easiest one to treat. For sure. Just, um, we're able to give them specific restrictions for a short period of time. So let everything calm down and build them up. Um, in the clinic and with their strength programs on their own. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the next one would be muscle performance deficits. What are you seeing in your population as far as that goes? So now that I'm doing a lot more testing using that Tindec, we do see quite a bit of strength deficits um, with the quadriceps in particular. So a lot of our population, it's not like they're, they're super high level athletes. They're not D1 or professional athletes, and sometimes they don't have a really good training background. So they do uh, pop up with weak quads bilaterally, and especially on that more painful side. In this categorization, they're also looking at dynamic valgus with that lateral step-down test. So I'm seeing that there's not too many people that I would give a pass rating on with the 10 lateral heel tap. So it also says hip isometric strength testing. Are you doing any of that hip isometric testing? No, I was actually, after I read that, I'm like, should I do that? Because I, I wouldn't just have them like put their like sideline hip abduction with a dynamometer. I would, I would want to um, rig it up with a strap. Um, but no, I don't really do that. I feel like, I mean, I would say probably should do that. I, I feel like I base it off of their movement, single leg movements and, and what's happening. But if you look at the categories, there's that movement coordination deficit, which, you know, they may have the movements that could possibly indicate um weak hip uh strength but doesn't necessarily mean they actually have the strength it's just they're they have poor 
um, coordination. So no, I don't, but I feel like, yeah, that'd be a good thing to do. Yeah. I think that's something that I'm going to try to rig up in the clinic using chains, ankle strap, and that 10 deck machine, try to just get some type of hip abductor isometric performance testing, probably hip abdu- or a hip extension as well. Just trying to figure that out. I know, um, the peak force company, they have a lot of videos on how to use handheld dynamometers for, um, different strength testing positions. So probably should start using that. Yeah. I think it just, just, uh, dial it in a little bit more, um, would be helpful, but I, I guess, yeah, using like a, a side plank and stuff like that would be one way to look at it without the, uh, dynamometer. Yeah, for sure. Is that it with the muscle strength or the muscle uh, performance deficits? Uh, yeah. I mean, I think like, just if we talk about treatment for that stuff, right. It's just strengthening and, um, whether the hip strength is a result or a cause of patellofemoral pain, it's, you know, people seem to respond well to it. Um, and then obviously quad strengthening is important. And if we talk about quad strengthening, you're typically going to do it depending on the pain level and protected range of motion. So if you're doing like a open kinetic chain, like a knee extension, you're going to go most likely from like 90 degrees to 60 degrees, um, knee flexion, and then build from there. Um, and then if you're going to be doing closed chain, you're going to want to stay in the, um, you're going to want to stay above, what do they say? Like 60 degrees, not basically not going into like deeper knee flexion angles, um, just because that would, uh, increase load to the patella. Yeah. I think the closer that you get to 90 degrees and closed chain knee flexion, that greater the forces are on that anterior knee. Um, but yeah, there was a lot of articles in the CPG trying to compare which was better, a knee strengthening program, a hip strengthening program, or a combination of both. Obviously, you have the patient in front of you and you're doing your specific tests. So um, like you were saying, like if they have weak quads, you should probably start focusing on the quad. If they have hip, weak hips, you should focus more on the hips. Probably not going to hurt to do a combination of both. Um, but one thing to uh, think about is that irritability. So if someone comes in with a super hot knee and they can't really tolerate many knee exercises, might as well just work on the hips until that knee calms down and then gradually build it up from there. Yeah, 100%. It's a nice, um, or if they just come in for one of their visits and they happen to be flared up, it's like, all right, well, we can still do a lot by just going to the hip. Um, uh, so it can definitely be productive. And yeah, combining both of those is most likely more beneficial than doing one versus the other. But I feel like that goes with any physical therapy treatment. Um, a lot of, a lot of studies will see like the combination of two exercises or two treatments is going to be better than one of those treatments by itself. Um, and that's probably just because you're adding an extra thing to the program as, a, as opposed to just focusing on one. Um, so, and I would say too, if they have a hot knee, uh, if you did still want to load the quads, you could do isometrics. Yep. Isometrics and or BFR. So they yep. talked about the effects of low load, high volume training, especially for the quads or strengthening the knee. They found that was pretty effective for improving knee pain. So lots of different avenues, lots of different ways that you can go about it. 100%. Um, and then uh, kind of touched on this earlier, but the movement coordination deficits, um, you're working on retraining movement as a, I mean, I still think strengthening is always a good component, but you're working on retraining movement. Um, so if that's with a, you know, a single leg movement where they have um, some sort of dynamic valgus positioning that could put more stress on the lateral patellar facet, um, 
uh, facet, you can work on retraining that. I know at, uh, at the clinic that I am at, we'll, we'll put a, um, like a laser, like strap on, like basically like a laser pointer at the knee and have them try to track that, that, uh, that laser pointer in a particular line and we may put tape on the ground or just give them something to try to run that over. So they're not dipping in, um, or use visual feedback like a mirror. And then, um, uh, you can also for runners or anyone that runs, um, work on gait retraining. Yeah. So let's dive into that a little bit. Um, I was reading an article from Rich Willie that was published in like 2016 and they recommended that for frontal plane faults. So more of that hip internal rotation adduction using more of that visual feedback, either with the laser or, um, like a mirror in front of them as it tech or as a verbal cueing, but then for more sagittal plane deficits in terms of like knee flexion angles or vertical oscillations using more of the cadence. So increasing the cadence or helping them just, Hey, land softer, or even changing their forefoot or their rear foot to forefoot straight. Yeah. And I think, um, if we're talking about reducing pain uh, or reducing loads of the anterior knee, knee in general, um, they typically say, uh, more minimalist footwear, um, can also help reduce the load there. Um, obviously strength can help. Um, you want to make sure another cue they would just say is, you know, and you would use probably some sort of visual thing, or sometimes people put like a line on the treadmill, but, um, just basically saying run like with less adduction. I mean, I think that's hard to do and it feels super weird, but um, just trying to see if they could change it on their own uh, with cueing. Um, so yeah, uh, increasing cadence is kind of, I would say increasing cadence is kind of like with any running retraining that where they have pain, particularly knee pain is, um, I feel like that's the main thing people do. Yeah, that's usually the go-to kind of like that gold standard, increasing the cadence by five to 10% from their, their normal cadence. Uh, but yeah, this group can sometimes be frustrating, right? Because there's studies that show an increase in that lat posterior lateral hip strength does not create the change in movement, right? So even if you strengthen their posterior lateral hip, that doesn't automatically correct whatever faults that they have with their single leg squat, heel tap, or their running mechanics. So just have to be creative and use all the different types of cues and feedback um, and just have to try a bunch of different things. But I think the uh the cues that we listed are a pretty good place to start i will say too like if you're trying to retrain um like particularly if there's if you're seeing that dynamic valgus you need to make sure they have the range of motion to to get into what we would consider a proper position which is going to be on a spectrum um because if they don't have the ability to like externally rotate because they're lacking motion or something like that um or dorsiflexion limitations, then they're not going to be able to adjust their movement pattern. Yeah, for sure. Hit all the different check marks first, hit that ankle dorsiflexion range of motion, hit that quad strength. And then if everything else checks out and they're still not improving their movement coordination, then cycle back with all those cues. So the last category from this CPG was the mobility impairments category. So it breaks it up into two hypermobility and hypomobility. So the hypermobility falls into the foot. So they're saying that you can test foot mobility, especially the midfoot and weight-bearing and non-weight-bearing positions. So you can use a foot posture index, but you could also assess um, the difference between 
the foot width. So if there's greater than 11 millimeter difference in foot width between non-weight-bearing and weight-bearing positions, then you can say, okay, they have a hypermobile midfoot and they might may or may not benefit from uh, potential orthotics and or foot strengthening. Do you have any other thoughts on that? No, I, I don't know. I think that one's pretty straightforward. Like if they're hypermobile um, and they say like, they do not recommend manual therapy for um, patellofemoral pain. But I mean, if you need to use something to help maybe improve like dorsiflexion, um, whether it's some like mobilization with movement or show them how to, to do it with a, with a strap, um, you know, you treat that. You can't really, I don't think you can do really anything with um, the lateral uh, retinaculum or the IT band. Um, but from personal experience, if I do try to mobilize my kneecap uh, into more of a medial tilt, I do feel some pretty significant stretching uh, on the lateral side of the knee, which kind of feels good. So maybe for just like, I mean, that's one personal experience and I'm no expert, but um, that may be something that, that can be uh, beneficial, but it's not going to change the length or anything like that. Yeah, for sure. And that kind of segues into that hypomobility. So you already talked about that lateral patellar retinaculum. And then they also gave some different muscle length testing measurements um, that they've just taken from meta-analysis. So um, they're saying that people will be considered hypomobile if their hamstring straight leg raise is less than 79 degrees. Um, ankle dorsiflexion with the knee extended, so testing the gastroc. Um, that measurement is less than 7.4 degrees. Testing the soleus, so ankle dorsiflexion with the knee flexed at 90. Um, that angle is less than 14.8 degrees. And then testing the, the quadriceps using a prone knee flexion, anything less than 134 degrees is considered hypomobile. So I think most of us are testing those, maybe not those specific positions, but we're testing muscle length with our lower quarter screen and objective exam. So obviously if you find muscle length impairments, you're addressing those. So it might not have to be the static stretching. It might be more of like the eccentric loading. So for me personally, if someone has demonstrates hamstring limitations, both actively and passively, I'll probably start them with some type of eccentric loading pattern, RDLs, single leg RDLs, um, hamstring curls on a ball, things of that nature. And same thing with gastroc soleus, more so working eccentric heel raises with the knee straight and bent versus just standing on a wall and stretching. I will say too, and this is something that I've sort of started looking at and, um, something that I've heard Chris Johnson talk about, and I don't, I won't have all the details on it, but, um, I'm sure if you take one of his courses, uh, um, you would learn about it, but it's kind of like twistability. Um, of basically the foot, the, you know, and the ankle as well. So like, and this is something that I've noticed in myself is like when you're standing in a closed chain position, it, we're looking to see if they can get into femoral adduction, external rotation, at least at a somewhat norm, uh, normative, um, uh, or just like into that normal position that may help, um, reduce or prevent patellofemoral pain. Um, so, if you can't keep in the way I I've kind of looked at people a little bit is keeping their foot flat on the floor. Um, uh, and making sure that they keep that first mat down and just seeing if they can rotate their knee into external rotation, um, and, and, and their knees in like, you know, a minimally flexed position, but it's not locked out. And if they can't 
get out or they spin their forefoot out so that they're um, uh, to, to maybe help get their knee over their foot, it's, it's hard to get, they're going to, it's going to be difficult for them to get into um, that position in it when they're doing, you know, lateral step down or just running or squatting. So like, can they, we can check external rotation um, and seated or in supine, we can check dorsiflexion um, with the needle wall test, but like in a position that they would, um, uh, that whatever task they're trying to do would be in, if they can't rotate their, their knee out, um, that's gonna be a problem. It's kind of hard to explain, but like, I definitely see a difference. And again, I don't want to use myself as a case study, but like I have great mobility on the left side where I don't have any issues, but on the right side, I can't turn my knee out, um, uh, and the knee angle that you would typically need, um, in stance phase of running, I can't turn my leg into, um, general external rotation or abduction, um, because of stiffness. And I typically feel that stiffness at the ankle as opposed to the hip, because I have good external rotation, but it's something to keep track of. I know Chris Johnson measures it in supine. Um, uh, that test is kind of his baby and I, I'm not going to get into it just because I don't want to step on any toes, but, um, uh, it's something that I feel like is important, but it's, it's nothing that I've ever heard about outside of me feeling it and him talking about it. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. So that's almost like tibial rotation. Is that what you're talking about? Just yeah, in a closed chain of, position. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. I'm trying to basically drive my knee out, um, uh, like rotating and, and abducting it. Um, but in, yeah, I mean, you could, I would say it may be a little bit more than just tibial rotation, but I would assume mm -hmm. if you could address tibial, tibial rotation, it would probably feel, it probably help. Like when I do it, I feel locked at my, like around the, the fibular head. Like I feel mm -hmm. locked, um, at the ankle. Like, I don't know. I just feel locked down there to where I just can't go anymore. No, I definitely know what you're saying. So that's something that I'm not super consistent with. I probably, I probably will be now, but um, it's that tibial rotation assessment. So we learned this in like the SFMA. So supine hip and knee at 90 degrees, and you're just kind of stabilizing the knee and the ankle, and you're just grabbing that calcaneus with the foot and dorsiflexion and just checking tibial internal external rotation. So I think that's a good supine test and then functionally seeing if they can do that in uh, a closed chain position. But if they don't have it non-weight bearing passively, they're probably not going to have it in that closed chain position. Yeah. And I, I would say like, personally for me, like I could get my, that leg into what we would consider a proper position, but I feel like it's like, um, like someone with shoulder stiffness where you can get if you force it, you can get their shoulder to whatever, to whatever angle they can get, but they can't actively, they'll probably actively move it through just what is smooth. Um, you know, like they're not going to physically be able to push into the, um, what they could get, you know, at, with active assisted or passive. Um, and that would be particularly with the leg, um, uh, obvious, uh, with like a, you know, when they're trying to create force quickly with like landing from a jump or with running. Yeah, for sure. That's definitely interesting. Maybe we'll uh, put a video out trying to demonstrate that. Yeah, worth doing. And then seeing if you can change it, because that'd be like the hard part. <laughs>
Yeah, I think, didn't we do something with Voodoo Floss Bands? Didn't we try that with you a couple of years ago, wrapping your tibia and then having you in that needle wall test and doing manual like tibial rotations? Yeah, we did do that. Um, I didn't do it consistent enough to see if it actually makes a difference. I also, I do feel though, like if you could do like a posterior glide of the, of the um, fibula, um, that would seem just like naturally would feel helpful. And then I'm sure just any sort of ankle, like I've tried to do ankle dorsiflexion mobilizations, but if I drive my knee almost like over my, I don't know, third, fourth or fifth toe, just to emphasize that position, I just like, can't like, it just feels like it just, you're like running to a wall. Um, so I feel like that's something that it's, it's going to be hard for the patient to describe, but I guess using that test that you use would probably be the most, um, uh, obvious way to check it. Yeah. And that also sounds like trying to assess that lateral glide of the telocrural joint. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We'll, we'll try to make some videos and try to uh, break that out a little bit more. Yeah. I think that'd be easier than just explaining it. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Anything else with the mobility impairments? Nope. Nope. All right. So I know you were mentioning offline that you have some um, progressions. Why don't you uh, break those out? Talk to us about that. Yeah. So I'll run through just like a general phase one, phase two, phase three of, of strengthening um, or just general exercise um, program for, for this, but then I'll talk about some of the things that I would do. Um, so kind of phase one, um, whatever timeline that may be, but that's sort of, that's when the pain is, is it's most irritable. Um, so you're focusing on loading the hip. Um, you can, and this is from Rich Willie. He's he's basically saying go um, to failure. So one of the things that he'll do is like a stork exercise where you're standing up against the wall. Um, I would do it on both sides. Typically feel it more in the lateral hip on the, the leg that's on the floor. Um, and you're just working on essentially pushing uh, one knee into the wall. You can keep that that hip at 90 degrees or, or lower and keep the knee at about 90 degrees. So you're pushing that knee into the wall and you're trying to externally rotate uh, the, the leg on the floor. So you're almost push, like basically pushing against each other. That'll light up your hip pretty well. And then just doing some um, supine sideline or prone um, hip exercise, like abduction, extension, things like that, going to failure, throwing a band on there if you need it. And then the other piece, like we talked about, just load modification. So um, uh, if running's the issue, back off. You can add a slight uphill to the treadmill. Um, uh, you can increase your running cadence, or you can just switch to like a bike or elliptical trainer. Um, uh, basically just doing, trying to keep them moving, but doing activities that don't irritate it. Um, and then he moves into phase, phase two when the pain calms down. That's when you're loading more. Um, so just generally doing like knee movements. So you can do, uh, I think the leg press is very helpful because you can really modify the load and play around with the foot position and you're locked into a movement. So you're not, you don't have, you can really just focus on what your knee's doing as opposed to any sort of balance or things like that. Um, so he uses uh, leg, uh, leg press, double leg or single leg, um, or you can stagger them. Um, but uh, obviously you want to prioritize load to the injured side, um, knee extensions. You can do isometrics or do it in the protected range of motion, or just go all the way through depending on their pain. Um, then he has like a rear foot elevated split squat or basically any split stance, um, movement 
so that's kind of where he starts with knee loading. He, he has, uh, he does like three sets of 12, four sets of 10, four sets of eight, increasing uh, percentage up to a, uh, of a one rep max. So just, so really like doing a general like strength or a hypertrophy to strength protocol. Um, and then uh, as they get stronger, you can start to add in some plyometrics or I would start with like movement retraining first with, um, uh, with jumping or things like that. And then you can really like get into um, uh, like drop jumps and things like that. Uh, double leg to single leg. And then the last phase is the return to sport. Um, just continuing um, uh, heavy resistance training. And then if like, this is sort of specific to a runner, start to get them on a, run, um, a running program, increasing uh, the volume. And he, he'll use tape during like the early phases of this. And I'll say TRIA, they place a large emphasis in their patellofemoral program on taping. Um, so they'll have them do a squat, see if it hurts, rate it out of 10, tape it with either a medial glide or um, uh, lateral tilt taping or both and then have them read the movement. And if it feels good, then you'll continue taping for a little while. It's something that does have evidence behind it to um, reduce pain in the short term, but not something that obviously you want to walk around with uh, for the rest of your life. Um, So that's kind of his general progression. I do want to touch on one other thing before we can talk about what we do. Um, There's also uh, studies out there just that talks about um, the EMG of, of the, uh, different muscles that you may want to look at, um, with telephone pain. So, um, Tom Goom kind of sent this, uh, uh, summarize all of this, um, information. So, um, for the glute need and the glute max to keep it simple, generally a step up is like the best way to target glute max. Um, uh, anything in single leg really targets glute need. Um, the number one thing with the, uh, uh, highest EMG for glute med activation was a, um, a side bridge to a neutral spine position. So you can think like side plank. Um, and then uh, for the glute max, it was uh, forward step up, single leg deadlift, single leg squat, wall squat, um, uh, things like that. So if you look at the EMG studies, particularly with hip strengthening, because it doesn't really hurt the knee, like you obviously want to try to do the exercise that get those muscles firing the most with a caveat of being step-ups may hurt initially. I like all that. A couple of takeaways from that, from the very beginning, just like in the ACL research, if our goal is to strengthen the quads, we want to constrain that environment as much as we can. So like you said, starting with a, a leg press or even a leg extension, we know that those are the most constrained tests and a leg extension is going to isolate the, the quads the leg press is going to take all the, the uh, stability restraints away. So you don't have to worry about stability. You're just having to worry about pushing through that sled. So I definitely like that progression there. Um, and then it just looks like, a, like you said, that general strengthening progression. Again, the biggest takeaway for me is just making sure that you're applying appropriate load. So you, you gave that sets and rep progression, making sure that you're um, changing the volume, changing the intensity. But if we just stop with, or like the leg extensions or the leg press, we're never going to get them back to the higher level test. So making sure that we're working on our end stage strength, our plyometrics and things like that, even though it's not going to be that full 
12 month program like ACL, we still need to put that into um, our rehab programs for the patellofemoral pain. Yeah, I think um, uh, the hardest part of the rehab is that phase one pain dominant stage just because you have to find ways to load without overdoing it. And we talked about going to the hip first if you need to, um, and then maybe some isometric. So obviously you can just do like seated knee extension isometrics into the wall in the non-painful knee angles. Um, you may be able to work above and below it. So if they have pain at like 50 degrees knee flexion, you may be able to work at 30 degrees and at 90 degrees. Um, so don't just think with open chain, you have to go between like 90 and 60 or whatever. Um, but also I'll help people do um, the seated version, but then like I'll get them on a, um, a step of some sort and have them just work on kind of driving the knee forward just to get them comfortable with loading the, uh, loading the knee because central sensitization is a, is, um, an issue. They'll be more sensitive to knee flexion, um, knee flex positions, or I'll have them standing on a step, um, with their back leg straight, kind of like the reverse of like a rear foot elevated split squats with the lead legs on the step and, um, into a knee flex position, then just have them pick up the back leg hold it for a few seconds and put the back leg back down. So just kind of some single leg isometrics and closed chain. So that's just a couple other things that I would use in the beginning. Yeah. Conditioning the patellofemoral joint. I like the isometrics too. Um, and for me, I just have the Tindex. So you're able to use that as almost like biofeedback. I know biofeedback is not indicated um, according to the CPG, but you can get their max isometric knee extension capacity using the Tindac, and then you can work on bouts of isometrics at 60, 70%, whatever their tolerance is for sets and reps. So I like that to be able to determine what their patellofemoral joint like tolerance is. So maybe the first week they're only able to tolerate 50% and then it improves to 60, 70, 80%. And then once we hit, hit a certain number, then, okay, let's try concentric, eccentric and things of that nature. Yeah. I think you just treat it like a, with anything else, graded exposure and just gradual strengthening progression. Um, anything else on the strengthening piece or, um, how you would do that. Otherwise we can just generally summarize, um, maybe just the treatment portion of telephone pain. Um, one last thing, when you were talking about the return to run program, what are your thoughts on the general jog one minute, walk five, and then progressing every week for these type of patients? Uh, I like the walk run piece. Yeah. Uh, and there's some that do uh, like walk for or run for one minute, walk for nine minutes, and then progress to two minutes, eight minutes. Uh, I think it's based on how we would measure any sort of pain like during, after, and over the next 24 hours. Um, so I, I always have someone start off pretty conservatively and, and, um, they don't take like a rest day in between to see how they react and just try to stay under the pain levels and then, um, build from there. Uh, so really any, cause any format of walk run before I would increase speed. So I would want like volume first. I would want whatever their goal may be, or at least up to like 30 minutes. I would want them to be able to get, um, uh, you know, higher volume before I increase their speed. Okay. That's generally what we do too. That walked around progression. Yeah. I was going to say quickly, just to summarize. So like you're, you're, um, ruling out competing diagnosis. You're looking for pain with squatting primarily. 
Um, you can use a lateral tilt test if that seems to be valuable. Um, and then uh, with treatment, obviously you're educating um, would be the first step on what's happening and how the, the plan's gonna go. And then you're, uh, you can cl use classifications, that's more expert opinion, but in general, you're most likely strengthening the quad, uh, strengthening the hip, um, getting them to back off of painful activities. Um, and then you can look at um, mobility impairments or coordination issues, keeping in mind that if they're hypomobile, they're not gonna be able to achieve um, the positions that you might want them to. And then you can use um, taping as a short-term adjunct. And I believe just like over-the-counter prefabricated um, uh, foot orthoses can be beneficial in the short term. Um, but I would say patellar taping is probably the major adjunct that you would use. Um, uh, when trying to get out of that painful stage. Yeah, that's great. Great summary. Um, so closing up, who are some people that you would um, tend to follow for getting this information out for telephone pain? Uh, I think, I feel like we've used some of these people's names before, but um, uh, Rich Willie would be good. Eric Muir did a lot of ACL stuff, but he also does stuff with the knee and he does really well with just like gradual quad loading. Um, so I think, uh, he would be really good. Um, those are the main two off the top of my head. I know there's others, Jill Monson. Um, she, she does, uh, some stuff with Tria and she has a fair amount of, uh, research, um, with telephone pain. Um, I, I honestly think anything Tria related, if you can find any sort of provider that works there, that's in the research is because they have their own telephone program that. Um, I feel like they do pretty well with. So um, that combines physical therapists and doctors in the treatment. Um, but yeah, anyone else on your end? No, for me, it's Rich Willie. He does a lot of, well, he was the lead author on this paper, this clinical practice guideline, and he does a lot of research with running and military. So that kind of hits all the things that I'm trying to read about at this point. Yeah, he does a lot of good things. So I'd keep an eye on him regardless. But yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's big with, um, uh, with patellofemoral pain. I'll also say anyone out at University of Wisconsin for running, retraining and stuff is um, particularly helpful. So like Brian Heiderscheid or Evan Nelson. Awesome. Well, we'll go ahead and close this out. So everyone, thanks for listening to the Athletes First Performance podcast. Be on the lookout for some of these videos for these um, assessment techniques and uh, retrain techniques that we'll put out in the next couple of days. So be on the lookout for those and then we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to the Athletes First Performance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode or future episodes, please be sure to reach out on social media or our website. Both links can be found in the show notes.